This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and in studio with me today, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And I don't have any clever introduction for myself today. I'm not making things go beep or ping or anything like that. It's just we're here wrestling with Ephesians chapter 3 today. Yep. 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 <laughs> the, the conversations we've had leading up to this podcast, hopefully this will be any, it has to be close to as interesting as those conversations or else people are going to start <laughs> following us around on Thursdays, insisting that we record everything. But uh, but this is uh, another in our series uh, where we're covering the book of Ephesians in support of or going along with the series of messages, One Body, One Mission at Rio Vista Church. Um, the idea that we have here is that we're sort of taking a deeper dive, going behind the scenes and explaining things more fully or, or getting to different things than the pastors are able to get to on Sunday morning. So we do encourage you to not only follow along with these podcasts, but also to keep up with the messages, uh, which you can get through our smartphone app or on our website so that you get the full picture of what's going on. But today we come to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3. And Sam, as I noted when I was just starting off making notes about this, I noted in my notes, that's a clever thing. As I noted about this, it is a, it's an interruption. The yeah. entire thing is interrupted. Paul starts off by saying something, and, and what he has to say is important, because it kind of sets the tone of some things, and then he interrupts himself. And yeah. it takes him 14 verses to get back to his original thought. And so, yeah, he, it's in verse, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship that, of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly, no. it's right there right. where he's, that interruption is started. I think he interrupted himself right after he started and said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentile. And so let's tell people just to kind of walk through this a little bit. He was a prisoner in Rome, right? Correct. At, the, at this time. He's on house arrest. He's on house he's arrest. He's not in a dungeon. He's able to have visitors. He's and he writing was converting letters. the guards, as I recall. <laughs> yes, the story right. right. It's like if these people would come and hang out with him and be his, he yeah. essentially his guard to make sure he didn't leave the house, yeah. and he would end up converting them. Yeah, elsewhere he, he gets excited talking about members of Caesar's household, you know, that <laughs> that are hearing the gospel, you know, because he's in chains, and he's rejoicing. He finds delight in that. You have to wonder, in the first century world, because Rome was the, such a dominant influence, and, and a lot of these guards that were in Caesar's household would then get positions of honor, like a governorship or something like that, out mm-hmm. in the world somewhere. You wonder how much of the spread of the gospel came from that one thing, yeah. that that God put Paul in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, he was there because God wanted him there. He put Paul in prison so that Paul could, through that and through the guards, spread the gospel all around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought. And, yeah. You know, it's not like Paul is introducing Christianity to Rome. Uh, from, from history, it's really fascinating. When Paul goes to Rome and he's imprisoned, this is roughly a decade after Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, or right. tried to at least. Clearly, there's still Jews in Rome. 
Um, but he expelled them. And so like Priscilla and Aquila who show up in Corinth, they were Jews that were expelled from Rome. Right. Those are definitely Roman names, Priscilla yeah. and Aquila. And, and so you have, uh, you have Suetonius, who's an ancient historian, yep. who writes that the Jews were expelled from Rome because of instigation of riots among the Jews caused by Christ. And so when Paul gets there, it's a decade after they've been dealing with disruptions among the Jews. And there's still Jews there because uh, you were talking uh, again before we turned the mics on. <laughs> we were talking about how the book of Acts ended. That's right. That and, Paul went to Rome. Yeah. So it ends with Paul going to Rome where he's going to be imprisoned. And when he's on trial uh, before King Agrippa, he's saying, he says to the king, he says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Now, this gets kind of into the discussion of what. Paul's interruption yeah. is going to be dealing with. Because right. the question is, was all of redemptive history, was all the prophets, was, was Christ, the salvation that came into the world, was that intended for Israel and just the Jewish people? Or was that intended, to, from, from eternity past, was that intended for both Jews and Gentiles? And there's a division there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a division between whether or not from, from the days of Adam that God would call not only Jews but Gentiles to himself. And the whole story of redemptive history is one of God's grace. It's one story. Right. They didn't put him in prison necessarily because of his theology, but because he was stirring things right. up. And so, so Paul is going to be called the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's, uh, he's upsetting a lot of Jews who are like, you can't bring those Gentiles into our midst. They haven't been circumcised, and they don't follow this, and they don't follow that, and they're not of, of our bloodline. And Paul is saying that's not what this is about. It is by faith. Uh, you know, It's by grace through faith. Right. That everyone comes in, both Jew and Gentile. And so the Jews are like, no, no, no. All of the covenant, all of the promises were meant for us. And so Paul is on trial and he's saying, look, I'm not saying anything beyond what the prophet, the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so you have this argument that's being crafted where Paul is going up against his own people and he's saying, look, the reason why you don't think that Christ and salvation and resurrection and that all the promises of the Old Testament extend to the Gentiles is because you've failed to understand what Moses was writing about. You have failed to correctly interpret the Old Testament. It was there in all your writings and you, you missed it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so modern day, that gets into this de- debate between right. what's called dispensationalism and covenantalism. Are you excited that you tuned in? Yes. These are, these, are, these are big theological words here. But there's one thing I do want to comment on before we jump headfirst into the dispensational versus covenantal pool, um, is where he says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In uh, Romans, he refers to himself as being the, the slave, the mm-hmm. doulos mm-hmm. Um, of of Christ and um, and then here he calls himself a prisoner and and you were saying that's not by accident that he would use that right. word prisoner and he's a prisoner in two senses here mm-hmm. it's saying he's a prisoner of Christ which is like it's the idea that Christ has me bound I am I'm not going anywhere I'm so caught up in his calling I'm a prisoner to it I'll never leave it right and and so 
at the end of this passage that we're talking about in verse 13, he's going to say, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And so what Paul is getting at is, yeah, look, I'm, I'm here in, in prison. I'm, one, I'm a prisoner to my calling. I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm here for good. Right. But I'm also a prisoner to the Romans. And in either case, I don't want you to lose heart because the gospel is advancing as a result of this. Right. And it's bringing about your glory, your being advanced because I'm in chains. And so I delight in that. Don't lose heart. Don't feel guilty about where I'm at. I'm happy to be where I'm at. So verse two, as you already read, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. There was an interesting note you had about um, stewardship here because the way that chapter two Mm -hmm. uh, ended was Paul saying that, that we, meaning the church, we were being fashioned into a dwelling place for God. That's right. And the, the, I, that idea of dwelling place had uh, oikos's house. Oikos's and, house in Greek, right, yeah. And so that word has that as part of its root. I, I'm going to blow it if I try to pronounce the word because it was like katoikos schnitzel <laughs> or something like that. It was just, you know, and I, I would be terrible if I had to speak Greek. Schnitzel. Schnitzel, I'd be That's terrible. That's the, uh, the rare German brand of, <laughs> of Greek. But it's the this idea that it that he's talking about this house that we are, and then here... This word stewardship, again, has Mm -hmm. as its root oikos. That's right. So if you remember at the end of chapter 2, we talked about those that are far off and those that are near. But in Christ, everyone is brought into the household of God. And we're being fashioned into a house in which God dwells. And so this word stewardship that we read, so I'm assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. That word stewardship literally is two words. It's oikos and namas that are brought together. It's oikonomian. And it literally means... That was better means, than schnitzel. So. <laughs> but it's literally um, house and law. It's the manager of the household. Right. And so Paul is saying, look, I've been made as an apostle. I'm the manager of the household. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing you in. Remember, chapter 2 ended with God's bringing you into the household. And Paul is saying he's made me a manager of the house. And I want you in. And the importance of that, I think, to the Gentiles who, as we, if you missed our show, uh, the previous podcast, we talked a lot about the, the Gentiles being brought into this sort of Jewish sect as the Christians were considered at that time. And by Paul saying this, by him making this connection in this letter, he's saying to the Gentiles, in effect, that you don't need to worry about whether you belong or not, because mm-hmm. I'm speaking to you with divine authority, divine right. power here. You know, I, you know, I am, God has given me this stewardship of you. I'm speaking for him in this regard. That's right. Yeah. He, he is the apostle to the Gentiles, commissioned supernaturally, by God. And so now we get to how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. First question off the top of the head has to be, what mystery is he talking about? <laughs> you know, what does he mean by mystery? And, yeah. and this is where the, we get into the question of dispensational versus covenant, mm-hmm. looking at this. And um, I'm a former dispensationalist. Uh, when I, so what is dispensational? Okay, I'll explain that. People say to me, okay, well, 
what's a dispensationalist? What's a dispensation? I'm like, well, the first thing you need to know about a dispensationalist is he likes to take things apart. <laughs> if you gave a dispensationalist a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, in short order, you would have two pieces of bread, a pile of jelly, and there'd be peanut butter everywhere. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That is the best description I've got for a dispensation. You know, as a child, if you, if you were a kid that, that uh, took the Tinker Toys apart or separated all the Legos into the different types of Legos and stacked them up so that they didn't get, they didn't touch each yeah. other. By holes and color. Yes. You were a future dispensationalist. Dispensationalists like to sort things. And I was that way. It's a, it's a way of looking at history. It's a way of looking at scripture. And there's a whole lot more that I could tell you about dispensationalism, but I'm, but we're going to focus on this one aspect, which is a dispensationalist would tell you that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. They're going to tell you that at some point in history, and they'll tell you that it's the day of Pentecost and Acts, that at that moment in time that God set aside Israel as his holy people, as his chosen people on the earth, and created this new thing, this church that was a mystery. So the whole thing was a mystery. If I had gone to one of my professors at Bible college and I would say, Professor, Israel, go! He would say, well, it's God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Great. And if I said, the church, go, he would say, well, it's, this, it's God's new people and we choose God because that's, right. th- that's how they turned it around. So they had no problem saying that God chose his people in the Old Testament, but, but they very so much wanted to see us as, as sort of free agents, that God extends an offer hmm. in the gospel and that we will accept or reject that offer based on our own. And let me just say, they used to say things like, have the good judgment to trust Christ as your Savior. And I'm like, by definition, we don't have good judgment. <laughs> if God does yeah. not save us, there's no saving going on if, we, if God does not do it. And so my first walk away from dispensationalism was first to walk away from the idea that I chose God, mm-hmm. understanding that he chose me, as we've been talking about through this whole thing in Ephesians. But a dispensationalist likes to separate things. Yeah, but it, and it's also, the way I've understood it, and correct me if I'm wrong because you, you're a little bit more familiar with this than I am, but the way I've understood dispensationalism is it's like, depending on what era of the Old Testament you're in yes. or the New Testament you're in, it's like God is constantly changing the terms of agreement. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so during the creation, here's one terms of agreement. Then right. the fall happened, and he goes, oh, now we're changing, and we're under a different dispensation. Right. And then the patriarchs came, and he said, no, we're going to tweak it, and so now you're my people if. And then the law comes, and, oh, now you're my people Sorry. if. And so it's like, you know, you constantly— You're getting those divisions there. You're going to be a hyper-dispensationalist, man. you got a bunch <laughs> of them there. Whether you're 7 or 9 or 11, you know, that's like, yeah. But yeah. that's the way I always understood dispensationalism. It, it is it's like how you get to God that is changes. Correct. That is correct. Depending how, on the time. How does God relate to his pe- to the people, to yeah. people, to his creation? How does God deal with his creation? Basically, what are the rules? Yeah. And the rules would change depending on which dispensation you are under. Paul is saying when he talks about this mystery, the mystery is that the Gentiles would be invited in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the and a dispensationalist is going to tell you the mystery is that the Israel was shut out and this new thing was created. So why is that important? Why is it important to understand correctly this mm-hmm. this idea of Scripture? First of all, let, let's back up for a second. And I'll let you explain. This is not a salvation issue, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. This is one of those... It's, I wouldn't call it a minor issue. Like the, the people who are dispensationalists tend to be very, very passionate about their faith. They love Jesus. Um, 
they're, they're all in. And I, this is not a salvation issue, whether right. you're covenantal view or the dispensational view. This isn't a salvation issue. It's like, you know, some churches will have differences in whether you baptize babies or adults. Right. Some will have differences in what your form of government is. Do you have one person who makes all the decisions at the top, or does your congregation vote? These are kind of like the the secondary tier issues they're not of how we do church. They're not insignificant, but right. they're secondary to salvation. Right. So but, we would say all of our dispensationalist brothers are going to heaven, and you know, tons of them are going to be closer to the throne than we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's true. And but it's it gets to a question of doctrine. How do you see the Lord? Do you have an accurate picture of how He has? Uh, interacted with his people throughout history. It does change the way you you read things. It does. Uh, and, and the way that you see God. And my first step away from a dispensational view was an understanding of what we would call Calvinism with respect to salvation. Mm-hmm. This idea that God, before the foundation of the world, in the in eternity past, that God foreknew, meaning he, he fixed his mind on me. Mm-hmm. I was in his mind, and this was his action to come to me. He, he, he knew me. He called me. He's justified me. That, yeah. So this idea of Calvinism is this idea of God being sovereign over my salvation. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a reality that in the Old Testament, and this is where people get confused because it's like, well, if you're in the Old Testament, how in the world could you be saved because Jesus hadn't come yet? Right. How were the Jews saved in the Old Testament? So, right. and Hebrews, you know, well, you say, well, they had the law, and so they would sacrifice animals, and da-da-da, they would do all this stuff at the temple, and that's what God expected of them, and that's how they were saved. Now, that's totally wrong, and Hebrews smashes that to pieces when it says that the shedding of blood of goats and bulls, it's impossible for that to forgive sin. Right. It just it takes all of the Old Testament laws and says that they were all intended to foreshadow what was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Right. And so the idea is in Genesis 3, right after the fall, right? So the fall is fresh. God comes and gives the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 when he says that the seed of the woman will come and the, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. That's the first promise of the gospel. So in that, it's this very beautiful poetic thing where, you know, God has, has condemned man and woman to return to the dust, and then he condemns the serpent to crawl around on his belly and eat the dust, right? Mm-hmm. And so the one who devours you in death, if you return to the dust, and then the serpent is eating the dust, it's he's saying he's consuming you, you right. in death forever, and there's going to come one who puts an end to that feast. He's right. going to crush that serpent's head. And so that's the first promise that we have of a Redeemer. And all of the people of the Old Testament are going to be saved the same way we are. They were saved by looking forward to the Savior. We're saved and looking, our faith, I should say, we're saved by grace. Right. But the, 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 the conduit, faith. right. Right. So the faith that they had in the Old Testament is looking forward to the promised Redeemer. Our faith is looking back at the the Redeemer who came and fulfilled all of those promises. Right. And a dispensationalist would agree with that. They mm-hmm. would. I, I'm just telling you as a former dispensationalist, they got no problem with that part of it. And again, dispensationalism isn't necessarily determinative of how we look at the process of God calling us to salvation or not. I mean, I was a Calvinist 
dispensationalist. I was a Calvinistic dispensationalist or whatever you would dispensational Calvinist maybe would be the word. Uh, when I came to this church 35 years ago, I was a dispensational Calvinist and there was an elder here, uh, a fellow named Chuck Perone. And, um, <clears throat> he and I were standing in the back of the sanctuary one day and, and we were having this conversation slash heated argument that we in good, we were friends and we liked the debate. We're Bible nerds. We like to debate this stuff because look, look, it's like this. Did God choose his people in the Old Testament? And I said, yes, he did. He said, does God choose his people today? And Calvinist me said, yes, he does. He goes, then what's changed? And Don't. there it was. It's like this light bulb went on in my head. And I'm like, so in order for me to accept a dispensational view of the church, this idea that the church is a mystery, a new thing, I would have to say that God had been choosing his people he had chosen Israel to be his people, and he chose people out from within Israel to do special things. He chose God's choosing, 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 and then all of a sudden he stops choosing from this pool, and he starts choosing a different people. And that, to me, once I had to look at it that way, that's where I said, I don't understand this artificial distinction anymore. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it changes the way that you read the Old Testament, because when I go back in and I read the Old Testament, where God is making promises to his people, he promises, his, I will be your God, I will do this for you, I will do that for you. The question is, if again, if you're a good dispensationalist, you have to disregard those promises. They're not for you. Yeah, they were meant for that time. And they, and they spend a great deal of time deciding which promises were to God's children, Abraham's children by faith or Abraham's children in the flesh. Because as I mentioned before, remember the peanut butter and jelly analogy, dispensationalists love to divide things. That's really what it's all about. They love to divide stuff. So they were even dividing promises. I got a big stack of promises here. This promise, (laughs) this is for the Jews. This promise, this is for the church. You know, that kind of thing. So they would divide these things up and it was confusing. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. reading the Old Testament and you're like, is this for me? Yeah. Is this one for me? Do I, Pastor, do I have to pay attention to this one? No? Oh, oh, good. Okay, I don't have to pay attention to that one anymore. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And so now, when you, when, as a covenantal perspective that looks at all of these promises as being for God's people of faith, God's right. covenant community, that means that when I read the Red Sea, when I read the Exodus, that's the story of my people. It is. You know, they may have different bloodlines, but that's the people of faith. That's my people. So you know, you can look back at your national heritage and you can get excited and feel nostalgic over, over you know, heroic victories of the Civil War or World War II. Those people are long gone, but th- that's our story, right? right as, as Americans. Americans, yeah. So the Bible then becomes our story, right. the people of God. And, and, you know, we have one hero, and he's always been the hero of our people. And now the other thing that's going to be big with dispensationalism, and this is not a topic for today, but I'm going to say it so people understand if they're listening going, I've never heard of this dispensational covenant thing before. Um, If you are a dispensationalist, what you realize in your mind or what you say to yourself is that with the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, this creation of the church as this new entity, that the prophetic clock concerning Israel stopped. That at that point, Israel was set aside. That's actually the word they use. We set, God set aside Israel, and all of the prophecies, all the clocks, the 70th week of Daniel, all these things stopped. And at some future time, there's going to be something that they call the rapture, in which the church, this mysterious group of people that they didn't see happening in the Old Testament, is snatched away, taken away, like physically just 
quickly disappear, okay? And that at that point, the prophetic clock starts again, and God turns back to Israel, and he has things to, to complete with Israel that have nothing to do with us as the church. That's what the dispensationalist yeah. would say. Somebody who is covenant in their understanding of Scripture, we see this as one continuous history, one continuous people of God, and therefore the promises that God made in the Old Testament they're being fulfilled in us and through us. And so right. there's not this clock that has stopped and needs to be restarted again. So again, it makes these, it makes the prophecies of the old Testament meaningful to us too, mm-hmm. because I don't, I, when I read the book of Daniel, I'm like, that's talking about this us here. It's not talking about something that's yet to come. That's right. And uh, Paul talks about that, that, you know, by faith, we be, we, become children of Abraham. Right. Like Galatians it, 3, tw- yeah. uh, 26, I think it is. And, and so it's, it's, it's making that clear that this is one household. I mean, in Ephesians, this series is one body, one mission. It's, and it's always been that way. Um, if you go into the Old Testament, one of the things that I think is fascinating that we read right past is, you know, in, the, in the, the Old Testament times, you had lots of people being grafted into the nation of Israel. Right. Um, so I'll give you some examples. You know, when God first gives the promise, first off, before Israel even exists, right? Right. You have God giving the promise at the fall. That's something, too, that we want to make a point, is that God made promises and, and yeah, for before Israel, Israel was there. Israel didn't start until after yeah, Abraham. That's, that's right. That's Abraham's grandson yes. that will be named Israel. Exactly. So you've got his promises to Adam. Then you've got his promises that are given to Noah about his love and his covenant with all of humanity. Then you get Abraham comes along. And when God calls Abraham, one of the promises that he gives to Abraham, kind of the purpose statement of why he calls Abraham, is that he, his seed, meaning Jesus, through his lineage, which Jesus will come from the Jews, right. through him, all the nations of the world, this is right at the beginning of Genesis 12, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so even as God is beginning to zero in on this bloodline of people, the Jews and the Israelites, as being the means by which he'll bring around the Savior of the world, he's not excluding everyone else. And he's saying God is going to use these people to bring about a Redeemer who will save all the nations on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And you have his sons that are going to foreign tribes to get their wives so their bloodlines out of the gates aren't pure you get i mean when the exodus happens when when moses and the israelites come out of egypt we're told that they come with egyptians and cushites and people from africa that they're intermarrying with right we know from genetic testing that the israelite bloodlines are intermarried and intermixed with African DNA going right. back into the BC time period. So lots of them are being grafted in. All these Gentiles are being grafted in and made a part of Israel. When Joshua goes in and conquers Jericho, you have Rahab, who's a Gentile prostitute in right. the city that marries into the royal line of Judah in the nation of Israel, and will be made part of Jesus' bloodline. You get Ruth, who's going to be David's great-grandmother, who's a Moabitess of all people, this incestuous, really idolatrous, gross worship kind of people, and she is grafted into the line of Jesus. And you get Bathsheba, who's going to be with David, King David, to bring about a son that will be in the line of Jesus. And she's a Canaanite. She was married to a Hittite. Like, the idea that Israel was just for Israel 
right. is absurd. Gentiles it's never were, been that way. Gentiles were constantly grafted in. But here's what is one of the beautiful mysteries of what does. God doesn't change how, how he interacts with people, but he does change the means by which he goes about drawing people. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to come into the presence of God, what did you have to do? You had to become part of the nation of Israel. You had to become part of the nation of Israel, and three times a year during the feast, you traveled from wherever you were to in the world Jerusalem. to Jerusalem, where God's glory was said to dwell in the temple. Right. Right? But you couldn't go in and see it. You Only the high priest <laughs> only could. Only the yeah. high priest could. I, I wouldn't right. have fared so well if I tried. Yes. No, we'd have been, <laughs> we, we would, they should tie big ropes to us to pull us out when we died. So, so if, and it's, it's like... So Israel kind of sucked the Gentiles into themselves, and you clung to them, and you became an Israelite, right? Right. And the New Testament, Israel, God's people, now all of a sudden, it's not, you know, you don't come to a temple. Now all of a sudden, because you've been purified in Christ, because my heart is now in the sight of God, sinless and pure, right. now I become a temple. Right. And what does he do? He sends me out. Yeah. So it's no longer, hey, it's no longer, hey, nations of the world, draw near to the temple where the glory of God dwells. Now I've been made clean. You've been made clean. Jews have been made clean. Gentiles have been made clean by grace through faith. And you're transformed into a temple. And now the temples go out. Right. It's, it's like, you know, the most powerful explosions that you experience in the universe are like, you know, a tsunami. What happens? Usually there's an earthquake on the floor of the ocean or something, and what does it do first? It sucks in, so like the beaches will will empty out. <laughs> right. And then what happens? This powerful explosion goes and takes everything out. An atomic bomb implodes, then explodes. Right. A supernova implodes, then explodes. That's the way that the Bible works. Everything implodes to Israel. God is drawing people to himself, and then once they're purified, they become temples it explodes and goes to the ends of the earth. And that's how we would understand um, the the passage where Jesus says, greater things you'll do than that's I right. do to his followers. Where he, they don't mean greater like we're going to, you know, we're going to do things that are, it means Yeah, I'm not greater, going around raising the dead or right. anything. It means greater in scope. He's, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus was in the area that he was in and he reached the people that he could physically yeah. reach. And then we, his followers, are going to take his message that's all right. over the world. So and that's so, the greater things. Yeah. We, it goes everywhere. The temple goes everywhere. That's right. Jesus referred to his body as the temple. Tear this down. Tear this temple Destroy down this in temple. three days yeah, and up. I will rebuild it. Raise right. it up in three days. Well, now it's not just Jesus, one temple. Now we've been grafted into his body. Right. Jews, Gentiles. Now we are the temple that is going out, exploding all over the world, and the presence of Jesus' body now covers the globe. Yeah. So if if somebody is uh, is you know listening to this and thinking ah you know th- this is really kind of Bible nerd stuff, which agree yep, I, agree it is, yeah. it is Bible nerd <laughs> stuff, which is fine because we're Bible nerds. And if you're listening to a podcast where Bible nerds talk to each other about the Bible, you're probably a Bible nerd also. Welcome. Here's a big virtual <laughs> hug out there in cyberspace for you. But um, the difference in philosophy and in thinking of this is that this has you know, imbued me with a sense of purpose, with a sense of being part of God's plan, part of God's movement, not just because I bullied my way in and I made the decision that I'm going to be your guy. God, No, this has been God's plan for me from the beginning mm-hmm. is that so 
I think that one of the biggest struggles that people have is this desire to find meaning and purpose. You mm-hmm. know, they just, nobody wants to feel like their life is meaningless or that they're, they're, they're here just to watch television and die. But when you, you know, when you come to faith in Christ and you understand these promises and these plans that God has had for redemption through history and then that you would become a part of that redemptive history going forward, what that tells you is that you are not a mistake. You are not, you, you are not meaningless. You are not purposelessness. You have, is that even a word? You have meaning and purpose with, with God, with, you know, and, and that you're part of this plan now. So when I say to people, you know, I have some issues with dispensationalism. What I'm really saying is I have this, I have issues with this idea of being disconnected mm-hmm. from God's plan throughout all history and God's people and purpose throughout all history. Feeling a connection to that, feeling a connection to the ancient church, feeling a connection to the ancient Israelites, feeling that connection has given me a very much a sense of purpose and meaning and direction. Anyway, let's get back to uh, verse four here because we have to get down to verse 13. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which that's what we've been talking about, that mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, this is what we're talking about, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, when when we were talking about this before, this idea that it was... Um, and I began before, like before we turned the mics on, that it was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. The 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 prophets in the Old Testament they foresaw the this suffering Christ. They, it wasn't like this idea of a Messiah that was coming to suffer for his people. That wasn't like it was an unknown thing to them in the Old yeah. Testament. Was they it? wrote about it. They wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, you read Isaiah fifty three. It's it's right there. So then what was it that wasn't revealed to them? What was it that he's saying here was not made known? What wasn't made known? So, so I think if you're, you know, the primary audience of all of these prophetic letters is going to be Jewish people. Okay. And so what they're hearing, you know, God's going to restore a kingdom. Because along with the promises of a suffering servant Messiah, there's a lot of promises in the prophets uh, that there's going to be the restoration of a kingdom and the son of David, you know, the servant of David is going to come and he's going to establish this everlasting kingdom where justice and peace reign. And so if you're an Israelite, you're looking back and you're saying, okay, we're going to get back to the days of King David who reigned on the throne over geopolitical Israel. And so you're thinking that's where we're getting back to. And one of the things that the prophets do is they talk about how this is like Isaiah. He says, you know, this is a light to the Gentiles, right? That right. all the nations are going to come under dominion of this king. And so, it, and what it's not saying, it, it's not necessarily that, oh, all nations are going to bow to geopolitical Israel. Right. It's but, not like Israel's going to conquer the world. Yeah. This Messiah is going to bring all the nations under his reign. So they were they were looking for a Messiah that was going to conquer, and they just didn't realize that maybe that the Messiah was coming to conquer sin and death, yeah. not Rome. Yeah, and hearts. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's instructive that where you're quoting, it says, it's been made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed. And that word revealed, you know, to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit, that word reveal is apocalypsis. It's where we get the, the name of the last book of yeah. the Bible, apocalypse or revelation. It reveal revelation. It literally means to like take the veil off 
It's being uncovered. You're seeing it for what it is without some kind of a blinding intermediary. And I think what, what it's hinting at is for so long, people have been blinded. They're, you know, right. The veil has kept them from being able to see this. But now the substance hasn't changed. Nobody's moved. Nothing has suddenly appeared out of nowhere. But the veil's being taken away, away to where now you can see the mystery. It's been revealed. Yeah. So let me, let me take us then to the next point here because we don't have enough time to talk about this, so this will be fun. <laughs> Verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, which I think that, by the way, is a play on Paul's name as well. I mean, it, he certainly, it's, it's, yeah. it's humility, but I think he's making yeah. a joke. Paul means small. Paulus. Paulus yeah. means small, yeah. Uh, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery for ages, hidden for ages, in God who created all things... <laughs> This is this we're going to have fun with this so that the church so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Sam, who are the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you, you have to, to go with the angelic beings, you know, God's God's hosts of of armies that are intermediaries between heaven and earth. And so, you know, what this is getting at and I love how how Paul is setting this up. You know, he's talking to the Gentiles who no doubt feel like they're, they've got, you know, seats at the back of the bus. They're, they're the least <laughs> of humanity, right? And, and so here you get Paul, who's an apostle, who's coming to them and saying, hey, guys, I'm the least. Right. So he's, he's elevating them above himself, which is wild, you know, saying that he's been, you know, given this grace to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and then together, so he puts the Gentiles above himself. Right. And then at the end, here's what's crazy, is he's inviting the Gentiles. Think about this. You're, you're the Gentiles being brought near, and now he's saying, you know, together through the church, Jews and Gentiles, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So think about the reversal there. You who in your heart, believe that you are back of the bus, second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Not only are you over me, the littlest, together we're over the angels. Do you understand the dignity that God has given to his people, the church? You know, elsewhere in Paul's writing, you know, it talks about how we reign right. with Christ, how we will judge the fallen angels. And here it's saying, you know, our job right now, and I, I love what we talked about earlier before we, we started recording. But our job right now is to teach them the grace that we've experienced. Right. Because you've got to imagine, what would it be like for the angels to look at this story? <laughs> I mean, that goes into, um, there's a verse in First Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where he, as he says there, he says that, um, that the angels long to look into these things. That they're, mm. It says that uh, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So there's a great deal of curiosity, I think, in the heavenly realm among the angels. So we got down to um, verse 11. Uh, so we've almost wandered to the end here. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart, 
over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You know, the eternal purpose, I think, that goes back to chapter one. That goes back to this is this is according to the eternal purpose that God has planned from the beginning. And this is where, you know, when we're talking about the dispensationalism right here is where I'm saying that there's not two plans. It doesn't say one of God's eternal purposes. Right. It's God's eternal purpose, and and it has concerned his people, one people, his people, since before the world was made. Yeah. God set forth the terms and conditions before he made us. Right. And he hasn't changed them. He has not changed them, you know. And then it says in boldness and acts, in whom, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That's right. That has to be the other big paradigm shift here in terms of this particular strange sect of the Jewish faith at that mm-hmm. time. Because the whole thing up to that point, like you described with the with the temple, you could only go at certain times of year, and then only the high priest could go mm-hmm. in, and and yet part of this whole paradigm shift is you can now have access to God anytime. Yeah, and he's been on a mission from the very beginning of time to increase the access and intimacy with him. So, like when you think about because he, we started that way in the garden, totally. So you walked with God. The difference was, you know, Adam's relationship with God was conditioned upon not eating from the tree, or so he would have thought, right? Right. And so the moment that Adam fell, and he's banished from the garden, God begins this salvation project. And what he does is he's, 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 it's like he's building our hunger for intimacy with him. And Mm -hmm. he's, he's making it to where, okay, he's going to call Noah, then he calls Abraham out of Ur, he begins to build a unique relationship with this family through which he's calling other nations of the world to himself. Then you get to Moses, and he's going to build a tabernacle, and you, you relate with him there, and then temple under Solomon, and a rebuilt temple. And then when Jesus comes, you have God in the flesh, right? God takes on this tent, this tabernacle of flesh, and he dwells with us. But then that's not even close enough. The intimacy that you see in Christmas is pretty amazing. So God is continually finding ways to dwell nearer and nearer to his people. But then at the cross, what happens is you are utterly purified. The reason why God cannot relate with us is because of sin. Right. But on the cross, I'm utterly made clean. All I'm not only my sins are purged, but I am given his perfect righteousness in the sight of God. And now, all of a sudden, an intimacy that even Adam didn't know, we now experience where the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell not with us, but in us. And the access to God that we have today is, in, is in a way, is superior to what Adam had Absolutely. in the garden. Because if you look in Genesis, it says that in the cool of the evening— God would come and walk with Adam in the garden. So God was not with Adam at all times, and it was God that would come to Adam. And now he has taken away all of these barriers so that we have access to him whenever we want. God's plan has been not just to restore our relationship, our intimacy with him, but to exceed what Adam had in in the garden. I have one final note. Um, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You talked about this earlier as being Paul telling the, the, um, the Gentiles to say, look, don't feel bad about me being in prison, that this is, that I'm doing this for you. I'm, this is good. This is part of God's plan. But the one thing I was thinking about, which is your glory, our purpose here is to 
to bring glory to our Father, to bring glory to our, our Father's in heaven, to bring glory to God. And so if that's the glory that all of us seek, in other words, we don't seek our own glory. You don't seek the glory of Sam. I don't seek the glory of Mark. But we seek to bring glory to, to God, mm-hmm. okay, and that have people recognize that. It's like, wow, you know, Sam's a really great pastor, a great Bible teacher, great whatever. Isn't God great? You know, see how, mm-hmm. see how God has used Sam, you know, that he gets the glory for what you do. So if that's the case, then your glory really is the same as my glory. Mm-hmm. It's the same as the glory <laughs> of the cool. Gentiles. It's, it's, we're all seeking the same glory, which is God's glory. We're mm-hmm. seeking that God get the credit and get the glory for the things that we do. So that's one of the reasons as I was looking at this, I'm thinking it's their glory. In what sense is it their glory? Well, wait a minute. It's, it's all the same glory. Your glory is my glory, is Tom's glory, is every yeah. pastor's glory here. It's all the same because it's God's glory. That's right. You know? That's really, that's really profound. <laughs> Occasionally, the, the, uh, the computer guy comes up with a profound statement. But Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. <laughs> well, then we'll let that stand as our last word on Ephesians. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that it's been profitable for you. You can find Out of Water where you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or you can find us in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. If you go to your app store of choice, you search for Rio Vista Community Church, you can find that, and it's under the media tab under music and podcasts. You can see that, or go to our website, riovistachurch.com. Um, you can find Out of Water there, just riovistachurch.com slash out of water you can find all the back episodes of this show as well as descriptions of what we talked about and as always if you've got any questions or comments or things that you would like us to talk about or just things you'd want to know after listening to this send us an email out of water at riavistachurch.com that's O-U-T, out of water. No spaces or dashes because I can't be bothered with punctuation. Just out of water at riavistachurch.com and we would love to hear from you so we'll see you again next week We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.